So today, we're going to begin in the book of James. We're going to begin today to talk about what it means for us to live out our faith. You see, the book of James, we're going to sit in this for a few weeks and talk about it. We could talk about the book of James far longer than this, but the book of James allows us to take the kingdom mindset that we've learned in this study of the parables we've just had and to put it into real life, into daily action. And James is a lot like the Old Testament book of Proverbs. It offers short, clear, and uncompromising guidance to live as the people of God and to become the people God is calling us to be. James calls us to get to work in our lives for God. Not because the works or the things we do provide us our salvation. God doesn't reward us if we're good enough to take us to heaven. No, we we know better than that. Last year, we looked at the book of Romans, and you may recall that Paul provided us with the foundation that we're saved by grace through faith, and we're justified not because of anything we can do or anything we could do or should do, but rather we are considered righteous before God even as sinners because of what Christ has done. And we saw that same idea reflected time and time again in our series on the parables. Christ reminds us that we get new clothes at the banquet even though we don't deserve them. Only hours of work compared to the full day's labor gets us the full reward as the workers work in the field. We may feel like we're discovering the kingdom of God, like it was something valuable that was hidden or lost and found again, and yet God's kingdom has been there all along, and God's kingdom, in fact, has It's the kingdom has found us. Still, when we understand what it means to belong to the family of God, what it means that Christ has come to save us, it easily becomes the most important thing in our lives because it transforms our souls. It begins to change all of us. In that sense, the book of James is here to tell us how to live lives for Christ of uncompromising obedience, even though we're broken sinners, how to begin that process to become more of God's people because of what Christ has done, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that we can be changed and shaped and molded to become more godly examples before others in the world around us. And so James is a book of simple godly guidance on profound matters of faith. Following after the parables, I think this will be very beneficial to us because we're going to get this sense that we're called for something more, something greater than our own natural tendency to be sinful and broken. And we're called to live and walk and talk and become more in our lives God's chosen people. And James tells us we are to do that even in difficult times. And make no mistake, James is writing in difficult times and he understands difficult times. You see, to the best of our biblical knowledge, there's only a few people we know in the early church named James. And of course, you may be thinking right away, this is James, the, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the disciples. And I think a lot of people assume this book was written by that James, who was one of the disciples. But our knowledge of Scripture, and this is just a real quick snippet of how we figure this stuff out. When we look at the context, what's happening in the world, what's happening in the culture, the language, the archaeology, the other historical sources that provide parallel information, and we have a lot of those, we find that context rules out James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, because he was martyred early on in the life of the church. He was killed for his 
faith. And so when we look at all this stuff, and we look at those we know who are recorded by the church fathers, who would be this leader, the one that wrote this book, we realize this is very clearly James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is one of Jesus' brothers who wrote this book. And he became a leader in the early church about halfway through the book of Acts, or a little before halfway. And in fact, the book of James is dated very early. It's one of the earliest epistles or letters in the New Testament. We have probably around 44 or 45 A.D., very early on. So James, he understood hardship. He watched his brother, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, the one who he came to faith watching. He watched him walk the long road to Calvary. He saw the aftermath. He saw the birth of the early church in the book of Acts. And then around Acts chapter 7, he watched that same church scatter. And what we call the diaspora, the scattering in the New Testament church, the the second scattering in the Bible. We have an Old Testament scattering and a New Testament one. It's very interesting in God's word. The scattering of the early church after Stephen, the deacon, was martyred. Now, if you're a deacon here at our church, hopefully you're not going to get martyred. We don't think that's going to happen. We're always looking for deacons. Don't freak out, just so you know. But be aware that Stephen is martyred, and then, of course, Peter and James and others. And in the end, all the early disciples are martyred except for John, and he spends the rest of his life exiled on the island of Patmos. And so, yet this James, the half-brother of Jesus, in the time of great unrest and great suffering and great uncertainty as the church is being scattered out, writes this book to the believers, mainly Jewish Christians, though others as well, who had come to Christ in Jerusalem and then scattered to the different ends of the Roman Empire, to the very edges, as Herod Agrippa was persecuting all of them, all the Christians. And that's the context, that's the backdrop in which we find James instructing us as we're going to learn in this book. He's calling the church, he's calling us today, he was calling the church in his day to stay the course and remain faithful. To remain faithful to Christ in times of uncertainty, to weather the storms and the challenges that we face This is a real book, and it calls us to endure the tests and hardships that life and faith will bring us. And we don't do this in our own power. In fact, we know that as hardships pile up, we don't have the power to do this. In fact, James is going to instruct us to rely on the faith that God has granted us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit that dwells in our hearts so we too can persevere by God's power. That we'll be able to stand, not because of our own power, not because of our personal grit, but because of something deeper, something powerful, something spiritual. And yet, it's not just spiritual, it's also practical. It's real life. The brother of Jesus is calling us that we would know that we are to live for Christ, not because of who we are, because of our own power, but because of who we are in Christ, even in difficult times. And that's how we are to make it through, to understand, to grow in our faith even now, And for us in our lives today, this is good news. So let's read here, and we're going to start at the very beginning. James 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
This is God's holy word. Now we know who James is now, and we know that he's talking to the church, and he's someone they would like to listen to. And in verse 1, he says here very clearly, he starts out telling you who he is. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. It sounds good, and oftentimes we tend to skip over these verses in Scripture, and I think for us in studying God's Word, that's, that's a mistake, especially as we learn the context, the background. It's always good to know what's going on when you're studying a, a book of the Bible. We can't read the Bible as sloppily and as quickly as we tend to read news headlines in our world. What I mean by that is nowadays we get all the headlines as if they're the story, or God forbid we get our, our, our information from Facebook or social media. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Your pastor is begging you. But when you see those things, go out and check them out. Read down, because oftentimes in news today, it's what we call clickbait. They want you to click on the article so they get more advertising revenue or they get more attention. And it's only about lines 16 or 17, they're telling you, hey, people may feel or think this way, but it might also be this way. Candidate A, since it's election time, might be blah, 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 but in verse, you know, in like line 16 or the 15th paragraph, you find out, but no evidence has actually come forward other than anonymous sources. Don't get sucked into that. And in God's word, don't get sucked into skipping over the background so that the book makes sense with the factual information that surrounds it. Here, James is telling Jewish converts who have been driven out, scattered, and in some cases martyred, like Stephen in Acts 7, as Saul of Tarsus, who will soon become Paul, stands by and holds their coats as they stone Stephen to death. They have faced some difficult things. Now, if it was our world today and we we're text messaging, imagine that James, Jesus' brother, who's a leader in that church, sends you a message and it says, Greetings in all caps. Hey, I'm with you. Christ is with us. His spirit is with us. Don't give up. Maybe with the virus, the elections, the chaos, the uncertainty, regardless of how you feel about any of these issues or any of the circumstances that are being used to predicate a very real, some people are truly trying to reimagine or re-engineer our world and our nation. That's not a political opinion, it's a practical and social reality. The world is being changed in some ways, whether we like it or not. And James was living in a world very much like that, where circumstances were not yet established as to what would happen. There were lots of things going on, but the outcome seems uncertain. Maybe you're angry or afraid or you're just not sure what to think. Maybe you're hopeful. Maybe you're excited that good things will come out of this. Maybe you're filled with dread and apprehension. I'm not sure how you feel about what's happening, but just waiting for the other shoe to drop, as I feel many people are doing in our world today, it's tough. And I think a great many people feel a sense of apprehension. Maybe they're hopeful, maybe they're afraid, but they're wondering what is coming next. So James is writing to God's people to remind them that God is still with his people. And we are those people too, and we're called out to belong to him and to serve him. And like James, he wants us to know 
that God sees us, he loves us, and he is with us. So don't give up. Even when the hard times come, and come they will, and come they do for all of us, not just right now, but in your own life. You've had hard times, and you know you'll have them yet to come. But that's James' world in the early church. It's our world today, and we need to pray for churches that are under attack, churches in some of our states that are facing persecution as they try to figure out how to worship, churches in other nations who are being persecuted in places like the Middle East and Africa and in Asia, particularly China and North Korea. We all face trials, and we are all God's people. So how do we react, and what do we do? Now, first of all, we should admit that in our culture, in our world, in our sinful selves, in our natural selves, we have this kind of unspoken law that governs us, and it's this, avoid pain at all costs. Avoiding pain at all costs, this fight-or-flight instinct, and this causes us, as we look at our world when it's uncertain, we compare, we complain, and we contrast. What does that mean? What are we saying there? We compare, complain, and contrast. Okay, what does that look like? Now, this is my take on this. It's a biblical understanding of what's going on. So if we look in God's word at verses, um, that's the psalm. It's supposed to say Isaiah 41.10. Sorry about that. This is Isaiah 41.10. God reminds people, and they were facing tough times in Isaiah's day, uncertainty. He says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. God is calling and saying, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to leave you. I'm here, and that's what James is echoing, and that's been God's story for his people throughout God's word. But when we get afraid, when we don't want to have pain. We don't want to have hardship. We begin this process where we complain, compare, and uh, we actually we contrast or we construct something in our minds. So what's that look like in our world? So first of all, we complain to God. We immediately do this. Job did it in the Bible. David did it in the Bible. Jonah does it in the Bible. I've done this. I'm sure you've done this as well. And it's not that God doesn't need to hear what we think. If we're saying, God, I don't understand. God, why is this happening? That's okay. Sometimes it's okay to say to God, God, this stinks. Why am I dealing with this? But you don't want to stay there. And as we begin to complain, if we stay there, we begin this unhealthy horizontal. We don't stay vertical with God. We get horizontal. And we start comparing ourselves to the lives of others to the circumstances of others, to the situations of others, and we start this grass is greener feeling or thought process. We stop looking at God and we start looking around. And if we stay there, we begin to contrast or construct our own understanding of the world with God's. And if we're not careful, we're not looking at God and we're just looking at the world around us. And we decide that life is fundamentally unfair or unjust to us, or to those like us, or to certain situations in our world. And that's not to say there's not injustice, but we begin to be in this echo chamber where we decide right and wrong based on our feelings, based on our ideas, based on our emotions. I think we're seeing that in the world all around us today. And the problem with this idea that we deserve to have it all go our way or our ideas for the world are the best according to our wishes to satisfy our fears or our feelings of weakness or 
uncertainty or inequity or whatever it is, if you don't see that in the world around you today, turn on your TV. But remember, we're not saying there aren't things that we need to address. We're not saying there aren't injustices or hurts or things that should be taken seriously. That's not what we're seeing in God's word. But if you fundamentally believe that life should have as little pain as possible, and that people are fundamentally good and should be left to their own devices to have what they want their own way, you don't have a biblical worldview. And you don't yet understand fully your need for a Savior to save you and me from our sins. Because outside of God's intervention, we are powerless. We need God to strengthen us. We need God to help us and to hold on to us because he has the righteous right hand and we don't. We don't. And James is building on this idea for God's people. He's saying, hey, don't just get caught up in your swirling fears and emotions. He's saying, hold on a minute. Take a look. And in fact, take a look and have a biblical worldview. Verse 2, James says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Now let's be honest. This is kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? A great joy, my brothers and sisters. It's a joy when you experience trials. This is very different than our natural wiring. Trials in our world. James is a book that puts our life into action. Trials in our world, when we experience them, when our life is in motion, when we have trials, our world today reduces or removes the desire to value endurance or grit or in just a sense of stamina, not just physically, but spiritually, that we are to face difficult and painful circumstances. Our world tells us that shouldn't happen. And yet God here tells us in his word that, yes, we will experience trials, and in fact, we're to have the opposite idea of our world around them. It's not that we accept injustice as being okay, but when we, fe when we face hardship, as believers in Christ, we are to understand it that God is at work and something good is coming. Now let's face it, without a knowledge of a sovereign God over the world taking care of all of this, this would seem insane, wouldn't it? To see a trial and a difficulty as a joy. And think about what we know. Again, the context of James tells believers who have lost their homes, their lives, and their loved ones for their faith even their earthly possessions, they've literally fled for their lives, some of them. They've been persecuted, and even the places where they have sought refuge, they have been rejected, attacked, and killed. We know that historically in God's Word. He's telling them, James is telling them, hey, consider it joy. In our natural self, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And in fact, if we're comparing our lives to others and saying, hey, they have it better, I bet, because they have blank and I don't have blank. It feels much better. It feels much more personally and emotionally satisfying in our sinful selves to start blaming everything on a circumstance in your life. I'm suffering this because of that. It's satisfying. You have an enemy. You have a plan. You have someone to attack so that you feel like you can get control. And yet James says, no, 
stop and reflect. And when you experience trials, it's a joy. Because James wants us to have spiritual eyes and to understand that we all have an enemy. And the enemy is us. The enemy is sin. And it lives in the heart of every human being. And that includes you and me. And that's why you and I cannot get this, cannot understand this. That's why without the Holy Spirit, this seems absolutely crazy. Without an abiding faith that there is a God who is sovereign and powerful and in control of all of this, it doesn't make sense. Otherwise, we would go with the crowd, with the mob. It's very popular these days. The word here is important. This word, this word about joy. And remember, when we face injustice, James is clear, it's not an if, it's a when. Whenever you experience trials. James says that you should have joy during trials. And to have joy during trials, let's face it, friends, it's a radical attitude that only those filled with God's Spirit can maintain and there's this word here. Egesafe is that word. That's what that is in the New Testament, in the original language. And that word says to lead the way or to suppose with careful and deliberate judgment to not go with the crowd. So here we are called to consider it pure joy. And that's not just, hey, think for a second. That's Reflect on this every day. Dig into this. And in fact, since you know better, since you have a spiritual understanding, you are called as a Christian to lead the way and to use sober judgment, careful and deliberate judgment, not just your emotions or your internal feeling, but objective proof outside of yourself from God, who is transforming your heart and filling your soul, that you would be able to discern. This is like that Romans 12 idea to test and approve, to discern, to understand what's happening in the world around us. And we have to do this not based on subjective desires, but in other words, with spiritual guidance, we are to objectively consider the word, the world in terms of the word of God. Otherwise, as a mode of fallible humans, we fail to see our world and our circumstances and ourselves as they truly exist. We see them just through our lens of sinfulness. Sometimes we're going to do that anyhow. We're broken sinners. But when we seek God first, we understand things from his perspective and we can have joy even in trials. Now, don't fall into another trap and see this as uh, somehow if we just dig in and try real hard that God's going to bless us and then we're going to have less difficulty in our lives. That's not what this is saying. That's not what this is saying at all. In fact, it's saying something completely different. It's saying something Altogether different, in fact. God's not obligated to meet our, expectation, our expectations of a low worry, low stress, pain-free world. James says, hey, whenever, it's going to happen. Instead, God does not bless us because we're obedient. We're obedient because God blesses us and guides us and reveals to us a new way to live and to even see our difficulty so that we can lead the way and go against the flow, go against the crowd. This radical biblical attitude that we face trials with joy, it has a few basic steps. First of all, we recognize pain is a reality in a world broken by sin. 
And yet, we are allowed to mourn that pain. Jesus never calls us to be like the Terminator or to be so stoic or so robotic that we don't recognize pain for what it is. Jesus wept when Lazarus died in John chapter 11. And, and then while we know Romans 8.38, God works all things out for good according to his purposes, and he's not done with our lives, we still can mourn difficulty in our lives. It's okay for us to cry out. It's okay for us to cry out when we're in pain. But we don't stay there. We move from faith. We move in faith, rather, from fear to obedience. Faith will move us from fear to obedience. Look here what Hebrews 5-7 reminds us. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries. And this he is Jesus Christ. And tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. This is about how Christ, even as he faced the cross, cried out to God and agonized. He had tears and he had sweat that was like blood. And he, he agonized in his humanness. And yet God was sinless. It's not a sin to go to God in anguish and say, God, I'm so afraid. I'm so upset. But we don't just stay there, stay there and let our fear consume us. Trials will make us afraid. We're human beings. God's not calling us to be a robot. But he says we move to joy when we understand who God is, who we are, and what that means. Just as we learned in these parables, we can consider it a joy because God is a source of joy beyond our circumstance. And when we seek God, when we recognize who he is, that he's on his throne, that this is not the end, that God is going to work it all out for the good, that he has it all in his hands. This unnatural and seemingly contradictory way of understanding things, faith is what moves us beyond what we can see to what is yet unseen, but we know God is at work. Hope beyond this life, beyond the pain, beyond the circumstances, beyond the afflictions we're experiencing in our lives at this moment. And we need to cry out to God because sometimes we're overwhelmed. And when we cry out to God, he promises he's going to come and be with us just as he was with Christ as he walked the road to Calvary. He's not going to leave us there. We look beyond what we see to what Christ is bringing to us. Redemption. We mourn our sin. We mourn the hurt. We mourn the pain. But we trust that God has come to put to death, to put to death pain and darkness and destruction and injustice and all of what's not right. We know that God has come and we draw into him to look beyond this pain to see that God will equip us that we can make a difference, and we can do it not in our own power, not in our own judgment, not in our own righteousness, but in Him. In Him. And that's what faith does. It moves us from fear to obedience, to be more God's people, and to affect change the right way, despite pain, despite fear, and despite hardship. Not because we're not afraid, but because we know God is with us. Verse 3 builds on this. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is a journey. This is not something we do once. We're going to reach in to God and grab onto him. And he's going to lead us along because this is not a sprint. This life filled with difficulty, it's a marathon. Speaking of that, I've been running for a while now to stay in shape. About a year and a half. And I've had ups and downs and Things like, you know, this virus and rules and my gym being closed and different things. I, I've been running a few minor injuries, all that sort of thing. And I'll tell you, building up endurance when you're running is hard. It's hard. 
to run with endurance or perseverance, and you may have read that like Hebrews chapter 12, to build endurance in our spiritual life is just as difficult. Sometimes I don't want to run. I'm going back into longer runs this week, and I'll tell you, sometimes I have to go slower than I want to go, but I, I do it anyhow. And my goal is just to get a little bit farther, a little bit better every time I run. Maybe that's you as well. And our spiritual lives can feel the same way. We face pain and hardship and setback and questions and uncertainty. And it's hard. And we cry out to God and say, hey, God, where are you? But it's only in the process of moving beyond fear to trusting God in faith that we grow spiritually spiritual endurance. Think about it this way. If you've ever seen them crash test a car, you don't just do a scientific formula, build a car and say, you know what? That car is four and a half out of five stars in a safety rating. You don't do that. Because what happens is the first time that car gets wrecked, you find out how safe it really is. The endurance, the resilience, this the, you know, whatever metallurgical or structural engineering analysis you've done, until that car gets hit, you don't see that in action. You don't see the evidence of that, what it can endure, and what needs to grow, what needs to change. And our spiritual lives, our own lives, become more resilient practically, emotionally, and spiritually as we recognize that God is the one who is tweaking and growing and changing us. And sometimes we're tested in our lives because God uses the hardships and difficulties, even those things he can use to change us, to shape us for the good. But in the struggles, in the conflict, in our world this day, and in James's world, that's where God is using those things. He's taking those things to make us more of what he desires us to be. And so what James is telling us here is God will never, ever waste your trials. In fact, he's going to use those trials to grow you spiritually. He's going to do that to grow you spiritually. He's going to do that to develop spiritual depth and endurance, spiritual perception, to understand, hold on, this is hard, and God, I need you to come into this, but I know you're doing something good. I'm going to move beyond my fear, and I'm going to trust in faith. God, I'm going to walk with you, even though this hurts, even though it's hard. Psalm 119.67 reminds us of this. Psalm 119 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. There's a contrast there. When sin comes, and it's always come throughout the history of the world, when sin comes, contrary to what we would think, our obedience to Christ, even when it seems impossible, when we say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to follow you, that actually can and will increase, will deepen our faith in trials and difficulty. The more we trust, the more we see, the more we see, the more we grow, and the more we are able to endure and follow where God is leading us. Time and time again, we see this where persecution not only produces endurance and strengthens the church, it actually grows the church. Where the church of Jesus Christ is growing in our world the most is where it faces the greatest persecution. Now, why is that? Because our faithfulness in our lives, when we experience those things, it produces spiritual endurance when we face difficulty and we walk through it in faith. 
now in America, what does that mean for the future of the church here? I know God has a plan to bless and shape and to grow our church. And even now, as there are some frustrations and some sense of persecution, perhaps here in some things for values we hold, moral and spiritual obligations we have because we want to live in accordance with God's word, we, we may face some of that. Christians around the world are facing far worse than we are here. But we have to remember, we have to remember that building faith requires endurance and endurance requires us trusting in God and that requires some pain, some struggle, some hardship. It's like when I'm running. If you go to the gym, I go to the gym. When do my muscles grow? When I tear them a little bit. God even set up our physical universe to remind us of this spiritual reality. That's how it works. These trials, they shape us, they make us more faithful, and they increase not only our awareness of God at work in our world, but God at work in our lives. And we're able to endure because God walks with us. And you may know the old uh, footprints in the sand poem, and everyone loves that. But in reality, there's not just certain times in your life where God's carrying you. He's carrying you the entire way. Before we were afflicted, before we were in pain, we went astray and did whatever we want. We reacted like everyone else, but now we keep God's word because we know he's carrying us along. Lastly, in James 1, 4, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Wow. The goal, the goal of this life is to be shaped by God. Not that we're suddenly perfect beings, it's not how it works, but God will use all the circumstances of our lives, the good ones, the great ones, the horrible ones, the unthinkable ones, to mature us, to shape us, to grow us, to deepen us. And yet we're still sinful human beings. And we tend to hold back or do our own things. And you're not going to do this perfectly. I don't do this perfectly. I say and do dumb things. I, I can make you a list of the last couple of weeks of what I've done, but I'd be embarrassed to do it. Maybe you would too. And yet even that self-awareness that we have in our sin and in our suffering and in our foolishness, when we pause and say, God, guide me. I don't know what to think about what's happening in my life or in my world. This is so hard, God. This is so difficult. These circumstances feel like the walls are closing in on me. Even that self-awareness to seek out to God, where we say, you're sovereign, you're powerful. God, you know. I want to lead the way. I want to consider my life. I want to understand it in terms of what is really happening. So God, help me to see what you're doing even in these trials. That is the maturing, the deepening, and the growing of your faith. And if you're an older saint and you think, man, I'm not good at that yet. I don't know if I ever will be. God's saying, remember, it may not all get worked out now, but it'll all get worked out eventually because I'm going to restore all things. And the farther you walk and the more you see me at work, God promises, I will grow you in faith and I will give you spiritual endurance. It's a lifelong endeavor. It requires us to surrender to God. Let endurance, let go. Just say, God, I need you to give me the strength. I need you to tear some muscle in my heart and in my soul. I need you to, to raise me up and to grow me. And as we grow and as we survive these hardships in God's grace as we walk through them. We see God at work. 
our perspective, it changes our character, it changes our faith, it deepens as we submit ourselves to God over and over again. Regardless of our circumstances, we place our hope in what is yet to come. That's spiritual maturity. That's what this passage is calling us to be about in their lives. So this week, I want to invite you to pray and reflect, to ask God to remind you and to reveal to you in the trials and the hardships in your life, what you've experienced, because God promises us in his word time and time again, and particularly here, that our trials will never, ever go to waste. They won't. He will use them to shape us, to grow us, and to reveal our faith to other people. Even sometimes the greatest stories of people coming to faith in Christ is when they saw someone else, someone else endure with an, you know, incredible faithfulness, unbelievable pain and difficulty. And in that faithfulness, they saw God at work and they came to faith themselves. I wish I had time to share with you over my years in ministry the people that I have walked with sometimes to the very end of their lives. And they faced it with faith, with strength, not with no fear, but they moved beyond fear to trust in God and to say, God, I know you're at work, and even if it's not to the life to come, I know that you're using all of this for good. God promises us that our trials will never go to waste. So I encourage you, friends, I encourage you, reflect on your life, even if it's painful, even if it's hard, and ask God to show you, to reveal to you, to remind you how he has and how he is using even the painful things in your life for good. It doesn't mean that those painful things themselves were good, that God wanted to torture you. That's not at all what this is about. But God is redeeming this world, and it's broken by sin. But God is promising you, promising me, promising all creation that he's not going to leave it this way. And as we endure and as we follow, we are a part of that redemptive plan as we become less the people that sin in this world makes us to be and more the people that God has ordained us to be, the people that one day we will be in fullness and in reality when Christ comes again. Ask God to show you how he's even using trials, even trials you may be going through right now, to make you more the believer he desires you to be. Let's pray. Father, I pray in all these things we would trust in you, that we would see you at work. God, that you would use us according to what you have ordained, that we would belong to you, that we would be changed by you, that we would trust in you, even beyond our fears, beyond our uncertainties, our hurts and our hardships. God, that you would remind us that you have the power and you have promised us just as Christ walked the road to Calvary and he began this process of redemption that you will continue that, that if we belong to you, that your spirit that dwells within us will transform our hearts and our understandings that we can be the spiritual change, the, the godly change, the light in the darkness as we learned about. We can be all those things as we follow you in faith in good times and in difficult ones. Give us awareness of how you're using even those to make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.